0: A Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking today about the disaster that has unfolded uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian border in the last couple of days. Keith, this is just... An extraordinary situation, really. This is because of the opening of the uh, new US embassy in Jerusalem. In
1: Jerusalem, and also it's the 70th anniversary of the creation of the State of Israel. So it's the first time in 2000 years um, that the Jews have their own homeland, right? So uh, that second temple was destroyed in uh, AD 70. And the Jews were scattered, although some Jews remained in the Holy Land. But then later on, of course, you've got the Arabs who moved through, etc. cetera. Um, and in 1948, Israel was recreated. So it was under the Ottoman Empire for 400 years. And then in World War I, the Ottomans, the Turks, sided with the Germans and the British and French and Australians moved in on that area. And Australia, of course, was doing a very distinguished cavalry charge at Beersheba right at the end, which liberated uh, part of the Holy Land. During the campaign in World War One, the British said to the Arabs, if you rebel and agree to shoot your fellow Muslims, we will support your independence. And then the British, uh, through Lord Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, said to the Jews, uh, we support the creation of a Jewish homeland. So you actually had double dealing by the British, promising the Arabs something which the British didn't give them, their own homeland, and then again, double dealing by the French, you got Syria and Lebanon. So during the 1920s, 1930s, the British and the French divides it up the Arab world between them. With, particularly with the rise of Hitler from 1933 onwards, you've got a steady stream of Jews fleeing Europe and coming uh, into the land of Palestine, which was controlled by Britain as a League of Nations mandate. And so you then get a rise in tensions as...
0: Sorry, sh- and just to quickly clarify, which countries now, when you talk about Palestine now, yep. which countries, what's it made up of?
1: Well, the pa- Palestine broadly, because the borders keep changing, but... Palestine broadly um, today would be seen as Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank, right? So that's broadly Palestine. So the Jews came in in the 1930s. There are tensions with the Arabs who are already there. Um, the, there was an outbreak of violence, and the, the British just before World War II said, right, that's it, no more Jews allowed into the Holy Land. Um, and then, of course, in World War II, with the Jews being trapped in Europe, many of them perished through Hitler after the war, um, that you get again this resurgence of of tensions. Now, the British in the late 1930s had thought what we need is a bit of land for the Palestinians and a bit of land for the Jews. So that's the two-state solution. It goes all the way back to the 1930s. After World War II, the British said, look, we're out of here. We can't cope with all this violence. Hands it over to the new United Nations, who came up with a similar two-state solution. So the idea, therefore, is that you have an Israel and a Palestine living side by side. Um, The first time this was offered in the late 1930s, Jewish organisations accepted it, the Arabs refused it. After World War II, again, it was the Jewish organisations that accepted it and the Arabs that rejected it. So then Israel, 70 years ago this week, decides we will have a war of independence. And so Israel then created itself 70 years ago. So remember, it's the first time in 2,000 years that you've got Jews in control of their own holy land.
0: So they just, to create their own land, they evicted Arabs or fought them off the land? Fought them
1: off, pushed them off the land, yeah. Right. and created this the country of Israel. The state of Israel. Mm. And... 1967, you get a further war with the Arabs because the Arabs, of course, didn't accept that. Uh, They then attacked Israel and the Israelis were able to take over, amongst other things, what's called the West Bank. In other words, it's the land controlled by Jordan in 1948 that is to the west of the Galilee River, uh, that river that runs down from the Galilee Lake up north down to the Dead Sea. So that's called the West Bank, and the Israelis took that over in 1967 in the Middle East War at that time. So we have a situation, therefore, where the Israelis control Gaza, they also control mainland Israel, Mm -hmm. and then you've also got the West Bank as well. So you've got three parallel territories running north to south, and so the disputed city of Jerusalem, which is the key thing this week with the opening of the American embassy. So in 1948, that was again in the area controlled by Jordan, but the Israelis got control of it in 1967. Back at the end uh, of World War II, the new United Nations, the UN said we will create two countries, Palestine and Israel, and we would internationalise Jerusalem. No Muslim or Jew will control Jerusalem.
0: And it's worth pointing out it's because Jerusalem is very important to all the major religions, Christianity, Judaism and Islam. Islam.
1: Absolutely. So the UN said um, we will internationalise the city. That was uh, not accepted at the time. Again, the Arabs rejected that. I'm not sure the Israelis probably would have accepted it. It's interesting because a lot of those early Israeli settlers were actually fairly secular. What we're seeing at the moment is an upsurge of more fervent Judaism within uh, Israel. Um, Anyway, back in 1948, Jerusalem was not seen as as such a major strategic prize. It never became the international city. And then in 1967, Jerusalem went back, well, the whole of that area went back under Israeli control, which they've held on to ever since. West Bank is, under international law, seen as occupied territory. In other words, that um, you can't build settlements there because it's actually not your land. Now, that's obviously not the viewpoint for Israelis. Israelis say, well, we've taken it over. It's our land. We've been here for 3,000 years at least. Um, That's why I'm a pessimist about peace between Israel and Palestine. You've got too many people making too many demands on too little land So I don't think you could ever come out with a peace deal. Now, it may well be I'm going to be proved wrong at some point. I'd be happy to see that happen. But you've also got to bear in mind that even if you could somehow settle Israel and Palestine, you'd still have a host of other problems in the Middle East, between Sunni and Shia, Persian and Arab, the struggle within Islam to modernise as distinct from conservatives. So you'd have a whole host of other problems. But often, you know, people say, do you think there'll be peace in the Middle East, which is actually code for asking me, do you think there'll be peace between Israel And Palestine. I'm saying, even if you do sort that out, and I don't think you can, even if you do sort that out, you've got a host of other problems still in the Middle East which are not connected with Israel.
0: But if someone could uh, sort out the Israeli Palestinian conflict, and Trump said, by the way, Donald Trump, that when he got into office, that would be the ultimate, and he was able to, he was the man to do it. That would be. Extraordinary, wouldn't it, if someone accomplished that?
1: Yes, because we have what's called the Oslo Peace Process. So, um, a quarter of a century ago, Norwegians decided to slice the problem up into a series of steps. You, you really, when you're dealing with diplomacy, you can either come out with one overall comprehensive program, which is how Henry Kissinger liked to do his negotiations, trying to get everybody in the in the room at the same time, etc. The alternative, which is what the Norwegians did, is to say, "Look, we will slice it up into a series of problems." So we will have, for example, the Israelis who are drawing from Gaza, which they've done. They've honoured that agreement. Uh, Fatah has to recognise the existence of the State of Israel. So you Let's do...
0: explain who Fatah oh, is. So
1: Fatah is one of the Palestinian groups, one of the major ones for the Palesti- Palestinian Liberation Organisation.
0: And they run the West Bank.
1: And they run the West Bank, yeah.
0: But then Gaza is a different story.
1: Because, that, yes, exactly, that's run by a different group entirely that don't agree with Fatah. And they don't agree with the Oslo peace process. So they want to keep the struggle going. And that's Hamas. Hamas. That's Hamas. So what we've got then is this you've got, for a site, you've really got two separate Palestinian entities which complicate the matters considerably. The problem will be for Oslo that you do a series of stages, bit by bit. The final stage is the, the final uh, status of Jerusalem. Now, I guess what the Norwegians had in mind with their negotiations is that the Israelis would trade their West Bank settlers for uh, there about 750,000 of them, get them out of there as they got them out of Gaza, get them out of the West Bank, and then we would recognise the existence of, the, uh, of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Trump has now thrown away his Trump card. Mm, the bargaining chip. The bargaining chip, absolutely. And that's why a lot of people are now very pessimistic that whatever deal Gerald Kushner is going to reveal in the whatever next few days, weeks, months, et cetera, will not be acceptable because they've already lost their major positioning situation. In fact, it's interesting. Some of the Palestinians are saying, well, the Americans no longer have any status. They've already given in to the Israeli point of view.
0: We're going to talk about more of this in just a moment. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda where we are trying to sort out the issues of the Middle East. Well, not really. I mean, who? no, no one could probably do that. However, we are trying to enlighten you about um, what has gone on this week between the Palestinians and the Israelis on the border. Uh, this happened, well... 58, on one bloody day, 58 Palestinians were killed by rockets and and snipers from Israel, so it was very purposefully done and it was because the Hamas had sent protesters, so the government of Gaza had sent protesters, Palestinian protesters, to the border with Israel. They had only rocks and some catapults that they were firing to Israel and they were protesting against Israel's 70th anniversary of the creation of the country as well as Jerusalem being the new home of the new US... The American embassy. And
1: I've been dealing with a lot of talkback callers who are saying, well, does the opening of this embassy represent uh, an example of Jewish influence in American politics? My reply to that is that... Trump is being motivated by the need to support or get the support of conservative Christians. The Jewish vote will never go to the Republicans. They tend to be on the left of American politics. So Jews don't, as a rule, vote Republican. There are Okay, there are some Jews that are like Adelson who are very rich, very conservative and a big supporter of Trump. So there are a handful. But what I think Trump is doing with opening this embassy at this time, remember... Obama made the same promise, as did Bush, as did Clinton. They all make the promise and they ignore it. Trump made the promise in 2016 and has honoured it. Why has he done it? I think it's because you make... Remember, quite often, all politics is local. And what he is doing is trying to win over conservative Christians. So conservative Christians despise Trump's personal morality, his treatment of women, all that sort of stuff. Plus he's from New York, which is far too left-wing for a lot of these conservative Southern Baptists, et cetera. However, conservative Christians see him as a flawed warrior working for God's divine purpose. In other words, that what we're seeing now with the opening of this embassy and the two people, two Christian leaders who spoke at the ceremony in the last few hours, both very, very conservative, not mainstream American Christian at all, but conservative Christian. What Trump is doing is mobilising that Christian vote. Traditionally, Christians don't vote in the United States. They see politics as sinful. They don't like to get involved. For the last 30 years, they have been getting involved. And in the year 2000 and in 2004, uh, Karl Rove... George Bush's brain, was able to mobilise the conservative Christian vote with the slogan, God, gays and guns. We love God, hate gays and think everybody should have a gun. And it worked, got the Christians out to vote. They couldn't replicate that same success in 2008, 2012. Trump has come along. They despise Trump, but Trump is promising to honour a big Christian uh, concern, which is over the recreation of the state of Israel. And it's a thing that's worth bearing in mind because you don't pick this up on mainstream American television or even well, even less so Australian television. There is an immense counter-cultural community out there who are looking forward to the end of the world. And so we're on the countdown. We're living in the final days is the expression. So the final days will represent the years of chaos which will then trigger the return of Jesus. Unless you're a Shia Muslim, in which case it will trigger the return of the 12th imam hasn't been seen for 700 years. So there's a lot of religious fervour in the air. You don't get that on American television very much. You certainly don't see it on Australian television. But it it is that subculture. And Trump has tapped into that subculture. And is saying to his conservative American supporters, I've honoured my promise. I'm the first American president to honour the promise over moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And obviously, he expects those conservative Christians to be tramping through the snow in November for the midterm elections. One third of the Senate and all the lower house will be up for election. He wants those Christians out to be voting for his people.
0: Yes, because as we've said, this is an extraordinarily unpopular decision the Americans have made by opening that embassy there. Talk to us a little bit about why worldwide this is not going down well.
1: Well, it's not going down well because, well, partly because of the Oslo peace process, which said that we will sort out the final status of jerusalem by the time we come to the end of our negotiations and trump has short-circuited that that's one thing second thing is that jerusalem is not recognized by australia as israel's capital right our embassy is in tel aviv the british are there the germans are there etc tel aviv out on the coast is seen quite i got to say it's a very short trip i've driven the distance so it's a very so it's not a long distance away but it is a different city and uh Governments do not recognise Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel, and yet Trump has now done that, and that might now create a, a number of other countries saying, yes, we will follow the American example. It'll be interesting to see what pressure there is on Australia to now see whether it's going to follow that American example. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens by the the, the moving of this onto what, in international law terms, is seen as occupied territory.
0: So what is, let's talk about the violence then, because um, the the reaction has been 58 people killed. This is not the first time the Israelis have been seen to overreact. They've been condemned for their actions, by the way. What are leaders around the world condemning them for?
1: Well, obviously the overreaction, because a lot of those people are not armed. But the Israelis are saying, yes, but there are thousands of them. By sheer weight of numbers, they will bring down the fence and overrun our defences. And the Israelis don't want to be seen to be allowing this sort of thing to happen. So there's real pressure on them. I think Israelis as a whole as a whole tend to be more restrained in their use of violence compared with some of the dictatorships that you see around the world. They're a disciplined force, but they've obviously um, become quite concerned about the sheer weight of numbers. But it's also the, this element of, of desperation. You've got 1.8 million people in Gaza, not with much to do, not much academic activity. It's, it's a poor strip of land, a small strip of land as well. So they're overcrowded, very densely populated, And these are people in an act of desperation.
0: And we've got to point out as well that the Israelis constrained because of the years of violence between Gazans and Israelis. They have constrained the country. So they're surrounded by Israeli um, forces who control very tightly who comes and goes, the food that's passed into Gaza, everything, electricity. They are in charge of their everyday existence.
1: Absolutely. And, and, And indeed, they can't even go out and do much fishing because the Israelis have restricted the fishing zones as well for fear that they'll be used for smuggling purposes. It's a note of desperation on the part of the people in Gaza. I think the basic question is, should Israel consist of one state or should it be two states? And this is what suggests the long-range threat to Israel's security would actually be the maternity wards of the Palestinians. So the figures are actually very interesting. So you've got... Uh, Within Israel proper, remember I've talked about these three strips. Mm. So within Israel proper, uh, which is a population of almost 9 million, 20% of that is Arab, who, by the way, enjoy a very high standard of living compared with the Arabs in the adjoining territories. So you're dealing then with perhaps about 6.5 million Jews living in Israel. Now, you've got to bear in mind that there's more than one type of Jew. It's it very confusing. You know, you, you've got non-practicing Jews at one end and you've got the ultra-Orthodox at the other end, who, by the way, don't recognise the state of Israel. The state of Israel doesn't exist until the Messiah returns. So it's a very diverse range of viewpoints. <laughs> so it's, it's a nation of, you know, as, I, as I've, I joke, you know, about seven million prime ministers. So that's about 43% of all the world's Jews live in Israel itself. If you then look at the West Bank, you've got about four and a half million people. And you look at Gaza and it's about, say, 1.8, say 2 million people. The advantage of the two-state solution living side by side is that you've clearly got an Israel that will be dominated by the Jews. However, if you lump together all those three strips of land, Gaza, Israel proper and the West Bank, then the Jews will start to become a minority within their own homeland, and that's the risk for them. They're your two choices. Either you go for a two-state solution or you just reconfigure the boundaries, include everyone, including Gaza and the West Bank, and in which case over the long term you will end up with the Jews being in a minority because you'll just be outnumbered by the Palestinians.
0: So then um, we spoke earlier very briefly about how huge a deal this would be if it was ever sold. Right? and it was ever negotiated by a world leader like Trump would like to yeah. do, like Obama would have liked to do, how Clinton would have liked to have yep. done it, Bush probably would have liked to have done it. They all would have liked to have this in their crown to solve the Palestinian-Israeli yeah. issues. So they've opened up their embassy and then Jared Kushner, the son-in-law married to Ivanka Trump, son-in-law, Jewish son-in-law of Donald Trump says he's going to come out with some suggestions for negotiations between the two countries in the next couple of weeks. What Could he possibly, let's just speculate,
1: (laughs) Keith. I have no idea. And remember, the Arabs no longer accept uh, the United States as an honest broker. Yeah. That's what Jimmy Carter did, you know, between Israel and Egypt. That deal still holds, by the way. Uh, it's It's a deal that was negotiated 40 years ago. And that deal still works. It shows that the Israelis and the Egyptians can work out a deal. So that deal still holds. So Carter was the honest broker. He spent... Uh, weeks, because he was a very fanatical president in terms of studies. You know, he read everything. And so Roger Fisher at Harvard helped him in those negotiations. And then, of course, more recently, we've had Clinton. We've had the Oslo peace process. What worries me is that Trump doesn't read anything. Mm. And so I've no idea what the son-in-law is going to propose. And by already recognising Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel, you've given away your Trump card.
0: Wow. I mean, (laughs) 20 minutes we've got to point out all the issues between Israel and Palestine. I think we've done pretty well. I think most people will be walking away with a, a, a sound understanding of what is going on there. But I'm sure there's more we can delve into in later weeks as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Keith, always a pleasure. Thanks, Kate. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.